Hey everybody, and here's our first podcast of 2018, our first full-length podcast. We had our previous podcast of Beltbox and um, uh, Trial with Ashley Griffin and Lori Petty. But this is our first official podcast back, and I'm so excited. Today, you're going to hear a podcast about the Parchment Hour, which is the songs and stories of the 1962 Freedom Riders. So I'm very, very excited. Um, I hope that you enjoy... This is such a learning experience. I got to talk to the casting crew and the writer and the director and the producer of the show here at Virginia Stage Company. So it was really, really fun to be able to do, and I hope you enjoy it, and I hope that you get to see the Parchment Hour when it's out. As usual, follow us on Twitter and on Facebook, and don't forget to like us and leave us a lot of comments and ratings so that we can keep producing amazing podcasts for you with incredible guests. Also, welcome back, and thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy this podcast of The Parchment Hour. Introduce yourselves. Tell us who you are, <laughs> what you've done, and what's happening. Mike Wiley, the writer and director of The Parchment Hour. I'm Tom Coynes, producing artistic director of Virginia Stage Company. And you are familiar with The Parchment Hour from before, so tell us how that happened. So, uh, I was... A month into my tenure as artistic director at Cape Fear Regional Theater in Fayetteville, North Carolina, when uh, I was headed up to Chapel Hill to see the opening night of the world premiere of the Parchment Hour Songs and Stories of the 61 Freedom Riders. I knew nothing about it other than my friend Sarah Smiley, who was uh, stage managing. The only thing I knew about it, she was like, is it a musical? Is it a play? It's, I mean, there are so many songs and dances, but so the, it was, I didn't know idea what I was getting myself into other than the fact that it was something that she was talking about how uh, the script was changing radically even up to, through previews. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, she, was, she, was, she was like, her, her brain was always exploding. So and and we'll and we'll get to the thing that Joe told you during previews in terms of the big note. Oh, but yes. like, so we'll get back to that. But so I went to opening night, not knowing at all what I was getting myself into, um, and uh, so I sit down at opening night uh, at the curtain speech. Joe Hodge, the producing artistic director, introduces. There was a freedom writer, uh, one of the original freedom writers, who was in the audience. He introduced him, and about halfway through the first act and I was loving it but I was jittery I was shaking I I was really uncomfortable and I couldn't figure out why because it's you know it is this non-linear piece the theatricality is fantastic the music's great and I realized that I was I was it was a oh this is why we do what we do kind of moment like it was this is why I moved my family across the country to run a theater in a small town in North Carolina is for the opportunity to produce a play like this in a town like Fayetteville. But, you know, I was running a theater where it was mostly Neil Simon comedies and big musicals. Mm-hmm. And the idea of producing the Parchment Hour was a, was a big open question as to whether that could happen. Happened that I had a... I had invited some important donors that night. And they weren't sitting with me. They were sitting across the way. In intermission, we were walking out into the lobby, and we ran into each other. And the first thing she said to me was, 
you need to produce this next year in Fayette. So that night I talked to Mike. I met Mike for the first time at the shop party afterwards and uh, said, yeah, I'm producing your play next year. Let's, let's make this uh, the play that goes across the country and is the most important play in American regional theater. We'll still, we're still working on that, but I do believe that uh, within the next couple of years this show will be one of the important shows in the American theater lexicon. I pray that he's right about that. Good night, everybody. No. Um, so, since you wrote the show, Mike, if you had to elevator pitch Parchment Hour, how would you pitch it? How would I? How would I pitch it to to um, to someone that was interested in it? Is that what you're? Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. So you're in an elevator with a oh elevator oh elevator, elevator pitch. pitch. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's I'm okay. so sorry. No, no, no. It's cool. Both cool. right. I like Mike. Do you not know what an elevator pitch is? What's... I'm like, I'm a musician. I'm like, I can I play thought, 88 keys. I, I can do it all the no. time. I thought I thought that it was it was if you had to elevate. Oh, t- got you. It, that's what that's because elevates a thing. In yeah, yeah. Life. So elevator pitch. Uh, yeah, right. So my elevator pitch would be um, the parchment hour. It's uh, it's about today it's about the issues that we are having and have had um, for many years but have come to light in this new America uh, which is still the old America but this play uses humor to tackle it it uses music to tackle it it uses stories of old but also stories that speak to the new is what I was so so my elevator pitch because Mike that's that's like all that's true but that's not really I mean like you're, the the exec is like, whatever, dude. That's a lot of words. Um, <laughs> this is why this is your job. <laughs> okay. So, the Parchment Hour is a fantastic play with music that is about a little known part of the civil rights movement that is incredibly important today, and it's funny. It's got fantastic music. And the language and content is such that you can pitch it to churches and newspapers will eat it up. So this is a play that you can tackle contemporary uh, issues in a package that is both entertaining and challenging at the same time. See, I should write that down. That's exactly. well. Now you yes. have it, so you can That's, play that yes, anytime you want. I'm to. totally gonna. I'm going I'm. I'm stealing that. By the way, you said something on the radio, uh, on uh, the public radio station a, a week or so ago, and I heard. I was like, I'm totally stealing that. It was the you know ordinary people can don't you know extraordinary people can do uh, ordinary people can do extraordinary things. Exactly. Yeah. I was I was listening at, at home and I t- went to my whiteboard and I was like, hell yeah, Tom Quaintance. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's the thing I find so inspiring about this story is that this is a time when when completely ordinary people like who 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 just felt the need to get up and do something did something and made a huge difference. Now, if this was mostly college students, men and women, black and white, who were only extraordinary in the fact that they were willing to put themselves, their, their lives in the line, themselves in the line, and, uh, and they changed the world. Yeah. Yeah. And what a, what a great lesson to us that mm-hmm. if, like, 
and 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 the thing about the play is that in in music and in scenes there are there are places where that keeps coming up. Which side are you on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and today, you know, which side are you on, boy? And which we, side are you on? We keep asking. Even we keep asking even our closest family members these days. Oh yeah. God, yes. Which side are you on? Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's coming up. Mm. <laughs> um, how long did your research take? Because this show is uh, quite factually beautiful. And over. I I would say uh, a year, um, because like like Tom said, even into even into um, uh, uh, previews at its world premiere at at Playmakers, I was making writing things. You know, every now and then I'd find just a sliver of uh, a statement that a Freedom Rider made, or that King made, or that. Um, uh, or that I even want to just move around um, and have it come out of somebody else's mouth because it made more sense that way. Um, so I would say over a year, but really intensely over the course of about seven or eight months. Mm-hmm. The first seven or eight months of of 2010. So from January to about August of 2010, I did the most intense research, utilizing also some of the research that my class um, was doing. I was a visiting professor at, at Duke and UNC, and I had my students reading the Raymond Alshanel book, um, but also going around and just looking for journals or diaries or newspaper clippings about the Freedom Riders mm-hmm. and everything they would bring back. Um, I would either say, yes, this is golden, or this is the same stuff that's on the front page of Google. That you know, and and that's the thing. You know, it was a, it was a lot of of just sort of 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 uh, of uh, making my way through most of the already known stuff to really get to mm-hmm. the, um, the the those golden nuggets. Now, did you have a yeah? One of my favorite little and like uh, this is in the world of Photoshop. Who knows? I, I don't know whether or not this was this is a actual image of newspaper, but I think it is. One of my favorite moments is uh, when James Farmer is at the end of Traveling Shoes mm-hmm. is talking about um, the story in the New York Times underneath the. I think that's real. That's right. a. That's, I think that's it's a real it's, clipping. It's a, it's a real clipping. But Dave does something with it that makes it. Sh- oh, the, the video design is fantastic. <laughs> right. Where the the big headline of whatever the moonwalk or whatever the 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 Mars whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, but then that goes down to the little story about violence in the Carolinas. Right. right. And um, and how, what a big deal that was. <clears throat> what a big moment that was in terms of turning it from. A, uh, a this movement that no one was talking about to oh now it's in the New York Times on the front page in, a, in an era when being in the front page of the New York Times actually meant something mm-hmm. right yeah what's what's interesting is when I when I wrote this I was I was in this place in my writing where I was just trying to um, to really um, break up the narrative that we had we had all been taught mm-hmm. you know that King was benevolent and like a Santa Claus and um, and that it was his organization, the SELC, and no other organizations. Also, that it that the civil rights movement was this monolithic, monolithic movement. Thing, yeah. um, so I really just wanted to bust up that narrative, and so I was looking for stories that that did that. And the you know the Freedom Riders is totally that mm-hmm. story. 
Now, have you had a chance to talk to any of the political figures that were around then and or are now political figures today or freedom riders themselves? Um, freedom riders, um, I've never met uh, John Lewis. I'm trying. I would love to one day meet John, John Lewis. Lewis. If you're listening, uh, <laughs> come see us. Talk to us. <laughs> one night I got a slew of text messages from Roy. Uh, well, I was on a, you, I was on a roll. He, he was. He was like, this show is so awesome. What is, we've got to take this show. Okay. I got So like, he's like, sending me emails and whatnot. I'm like... Roy is using his whole intermission to do this. I am. <laughs> like, like, I'm not leaving this stage <laughs> until we find uh, uh, John Lewis. You know, I've, I've um, had conversations with Andrew Young, uh, which were really um, interesting conversations because Andrew Young uh, himself is an interesting individual, um, but also, and not that Andrew Young was a freedom rider, but he knew, of course, many freedom riders like um, um, C.T. Vivian and... Um, uh, and James Bevel and a number of all of these all of these folks, um, um, uh, and he himself will still say to this day that he believes that racism is a disease, that yeah. is a, it is a clinical disease. Right. He, that that's he she, he believes that, and and when you talk to him, you start to actually understand what he means. Well, you know, it's we've had these panel discussions, um, and that uh, we had three panel discussions. One of them was with primarily historians uh, talking about uh, talking about the period, but also then talking about that how that relates currently. Uh, and then we also had panel discussions talking to protesters, both from then and today. And Ed Ladd, who was uh, a sit-in protester at 13 in Tennessee, he talks about that exactly as a disease. He talks about the disease of racism that we've treated the symptoms, you know, that we've kind of put a band-aid over it yes. without actually dealing with the, the root cause. Um, Dr. Uh, Nubi Alexander, Cassandra Nubi Alexander, a, a historian at, uh, at uh, Norfolk State University, talks about how historically, not, not just regarding uh, narrowly this issue, but historically, um, that it takes about half as long to break down a system as it takes to build it up. Mm-hmm. And if you think about racism in this country, that's a long time, mm. and we have a long way to go. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been uh, fascinating talking to, um, to people about the contemporary relevance of this show and getting I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I've gotten several angry emails um, about yeah about how how dare you suggest that Black Lives Matter the liberal hate group has anything to do with the Freedom Riders you know wow yeah. wow and um, and somebody said that you clearly are not a writer based on your uh, your writer's note which is a little political, particularly for a nonprofit institution. But this is an artist statement. That's okay. Um, but you know, it's something where. So this this one person, um, uh, what they said was, my wife and I loved it until the last five minutes of the show, where we were slapped in the face with this Black Lives Matter stuff. And the thing that strikes me about it was, they talk about how loving the show, loving. Uh, the depiction of Freedom Riders, 
felt slapped in the face for the last five minutes, and on a scale of one to ten, rated it a one. Would you recommend this for anybody else? No. Um, wow. If you do this again, I won't come back. And it's, it's I think, an indication of how polarized the politics are today, yeah. where somebody can completely engage in something, and then if some, there's something they don't agree with, and they feel like it's political, and it's challenging what their current political view is, they drop out entirely and say, oh, I'm, I'm out. As opposed to what we're trying to do here, which is start a dialogue and actually have a conversation about yeah, I'm. I'm always amazed that folks that that can't make it's not even a leap, you know. Can't see, can't can't watch this play from beginning to end, and make that journey with us. Not that I've come across many, but make that journey with us. That journey from um, from the early days of the Freedom Rides to how. The freedom rides speak to uh, speak to today. I just don't understand how where the disconnect happens. And I think you're right. I think it's it's political. People throw up walls as soon as they feel like their political ideologies are being challenged. Instead of saying, "Oh, you mean the freedom riders are like the Black Lives Movement and that." Even though I might not agree with the Black Lives Movement, but I understand the similarities between the two, and okay, well, and that's, go there. I mean, take this thing that since getting some of those complaints, mm-hmm. rewatching the show with that lens on and listening to Governor Patterson, and you know, while no one is talking today about Black Lives Matter as rabble rousers because you know it's not the fifties. Um, <laughs> the, the, that, the, the language of race baiters and, yeah. and that the, the line that governor Patterson talks about governor Patterson, governor of Alabama at the time, mm-hmm. who was a staunch segregationist. Um, and there was one point in the play where he talks about, you got what you wanted. You, you know, there, there's violence and, and here you go. You got what you wanted. And that's what I hear a lot about Black Lives Matter, is what you want is violence. What you want is discord. And it's this kind of um, equation of that's the disconnect. That's right. That's And look, I've got, I've got a friend who's a cop who thinks Black Lives Matter is a terrorist hate group. It's tough. Um, but the language is almost exactly the same. It's almost as, exactly as the same. What was used for this for the for the Freedom Riders back then? Is it about violence or is it about listening? I, it's a it's the the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know that there's. Thank God I can't be canceled because I'm paying for this myself. Um, I don't know that it's about. Vi- I don't. I don't think it's, it's about violence. It's about making a statement, but it's, it's also about, the two uh, groups having to listen. And sometimes, yeah. as a teenager and as a twenty-something-year-old, that's hard to do, especially when it's someone saying the most vile things to your face. But sometimes, taking what they're saying and listening to it, and being able to hear them, not agree. I'm not agreeing with you, but I hear you and I validate you and I understand what you're saying. I don't agree with it. I don't necessarily support it, but I hear you. And I think that's something that we've not quite learned how to do in this country is just say, I hear you, I understand, I don't agree with it, I don't condone it, but I hear what you're saying. Right, right. I mean, there are a lot of folks that it's it's like, 
Um, I think Governor Patterson even says, that, <clears throat> or someone says that they believe that Martin Luther King is the worst enemy America's had. You know, they believe during that time period, Martin Luther King is America's worst enemy. And they would probably have considered him a terrorist um, uh, or something to that effect during that uh, during that time period. I'm, I'm certain of it. There are many, 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 many um, versions um, uh, of stories and newspaper clippings and editorials that call him a hate monger simply because he was asking for equal rights. It's the same here today with the Black Lives Matter. But I think in terms of what you're saying, I think that the... Look, I don't think anybody's going to pretend like one side or the other has a monopoly on 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 not listening, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or I mean, I think that the you know, I think that the and this is this is why I believe theater is so important mm-hmm. is that I think in contemporary society we we increasingly live in this bubble where. You know, we get the news from the people we already agree with. We, we, we filter out our friends based on whether or not they're saying things we already like. Yeah. You know, the news things that come up on Facebook are the ones that Facebook thinks we already agree with. Yeah. So both sides um, increasingly lives in a bubble. <laughs> and theater is the place where you can come together and try to experience something in a group and have a conversation. I, I wish that some of the people who uh, reacted poorly to the end of the play yeah. participated in the talkbacks afterwards. But I think most, if not all, stormed out and did not partic- engage in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope, is that we can figure out a way to engage. Um, and I think it's what you're saying. In terms that's of where it I, starts. I you, we just right? have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I don't agree. Yeah. But not yeah, listen. But we need to talk about it. We need yeah. to. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows where I stand politically, and many of my guests do. I don't agree with all that's happening, but I well, let's talk about it. I don't yeah. mind. Yeah, it, absolutely. You're not enforcing anything on me. But anyways, so we there's one part of this story that I didn't know until uh, we got to the show, and it's a specific location. And it's Parchment Farm. So I knew about the Freedom Riders, and I knew what happened, and I knew that a bus was bombed, and like, friends, see the show. You will learn so many things you didn't know before, and then you'll buy books about it, and then you'll be up all night reading, which is what I've done. (laughs) Then you text the director and the writer, and you're like, do this! Um, (laughs) Parchment Farm is an insane place. Can you tell our listeners about what that is, and what happened there? I mean, it's crazy. Okay, so the Parchment... Farm history, in a, in a really quick nutshell, is Parchment Plantation used to be just that, a plantation. So after slavery, um, these crops still needed to get, get picked. They didn't have any more free labor. So there's a great book called Worse Than Slavery. Um, um, but basically, these crops, these, these, all this land, acres and acres of land, still needed to get um, to get tilled and, and cotton needed to be picked and all of those things. And so they sold the land, and I may be mushing this up a little bit, but they sold the land um, to um, uh, the state. The state turned it into a prison farm, and and just like half of those old movies, and, and they're, they're not, a, you know, they're, they're not... 
actually incorrect in that there were people, mostly black, were um, uh, um, charged with trumped-up things and, uh, and sent to, to Parchman. And many of them, especially in the early years, and it's still, you know, it's still a working um, prison farm, um, many of them um, went through those gates and never returned out. Many of them died in, in Parchman, lived the rest of their lives there for doing things like, you know, stealing a car or maybe not even that, just being accused of that. Um, and so that's what uh, Parchman became, just this giant prison plantation so that these crops could still be picked with free labor, but now it's prison labor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, There's a line that's it's essentially... A 21,000-acre... Slave plantation. Yeah, twentieth century. Twentieth century slave, slave plantation. plantation. Now, if you look that up, listeners, and you see Google images, it is a gorgeous place. The images, that, I mean, the images that they project are really beautiful. It's like the um, the zoo that if you've ever seen um, the zookeeper's wife. Oh, mm-hmm. the zoo that's in oh gosh, where is it? It's Germany. Germany is stunning, and it was you know it's been built up and beautiful now, but the parchment farm and the pictures that they have are just so stunning. Big old houses, big old plantation houses. It's beautiful. The gates, the gates for parchment are tall and massive. Um, um, When we first started doing this, we took a bunch of students who were also performing in the play down to Mississippi and and we got to to take a tour of the of the death house where the, the the Parchment Penitentiary, where the where the the Freedom Riders were kept, and I don't, I can't remember whether I highlight that in the show or not. But the Freedom Riders are kept in death row, uh, and and so we got an opportunity to tour death row, which is just exactly what they describe it as—a long, low brick building on the very end of the hallway. Imagine on the very end of the hallway um, is the the electric chair. This is right there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in the electric chair, and and outside, outside, it's just plush grass and 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 these walls. But there's this beautiful, beautiful land. So, it's really awesome. P.S. In the next production, maybe the electric chair is kind of like upstage, <laughs> kind of, That's right? There. I mean, it's I mean, cool. it's there. What did, did yeah. <laughs> so? What it's, was it like to walk in in that environment? I mean, I can't even imagine what was, that was like. It was it was emotional, especially for for students who had been working on this piece for the better part of eight or nine months at that point, and so they were they were ensconced in in the in the life of the Freedom Riders, but not just the life of the Freedom Riders, the lives of the Freedom Riders, but also the the, the movement mm-hmm. and during that time period. And so, um, first of all, we got um, not strip searched before we went in. But um, Aya, it was me, a number of students, Aya, who is the, uh, the choreographer still, um, and uh, a few chaperones, and we all had to go into separate rooms one by one and be, in essence, we had to show that we weren't carrying any weapons or any contraband or anything like that, so we had to unzip our pants and... And really? Yeah, wow. yeah. We like, and we got patted down behind a curtain. Wow. We had to do all that behind a curtain, and um, 
And the thing is, we wanted to film all of it, but we couldn't. We 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 because we, we were doing this documentary. We're like we really want to film this. Like, oh yeah, yeah taking yeah, the camera. Film, yeah. Uh, so uh, so yeah, we had to 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 undress a little bit. So that was all very. Uh, unnerving, and the room that they do all that in, the room that they do little strip searches in and and whatnot, is kind of this old cabin that's kind of a museum, uh, because all over the walls and in little cases, in little little plexiglass cases, they have old the old chains, like oh uh, old uh, like chattel chains and things of that nature, and and pictures of what parchment has been over the years. It's a really that's uh, it's like the Twilight Zone. So now let's talk about the theater aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Casting the show, can't even imagine. What is it's, And you've done it quite a few times, and you've kept some of the people that have started with you in doing the show. Mm-hmm. How do you cast the show? <laughs> uh, Which, say, I was, I, was, uh, I was talking to Didi Batiste last night, who was in that original production... Uh, at, mm-hmm. at Playmaker she's in this production now and she talks about the, the evolution of that casting in terms of the difference between doing it now and doing it at Playmakers Playmakers um, that first production was far more gender and racially fluid yeah. in terms of who was playing what right men playing women white playing black black playing white um in a way that still happens somewhat, yeah. So but it some, was but not even close. It was not close to the extent to which it was mm-hmm. the case um, in that first production. I'm interested in how you feel like that evolution because it that changes somewhat how you how you watch the show. I think that I mean I'll say that from a producer's from a producerial standpoint, uh, doing it in a in a an academic you know the playmakers rep. Lorty Theater, but it's on campus at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. You know, you've got the Research Triangle. It is a very much a, a university setting, and that um, the 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 that part of the kind of abstraction of the casting um, makes a little bit more sense. That's not quite the right word, but it's. It's it's harder for an audience that's coming into a theater that's not attached to a university exactly uh, to process that. I think. Yeah, because yeah. they'll they're constantly wondering. Well, I don't understand why that why that woman is playing a man, right? Or that man is playing a woman. And I mean, they'll there are audiences of a certain age. That will just constantly question that. It'll, it'll question it so much that they'll never be able to just sink into the world of the mm-hmm. play. Um, and and then they'll tell their friends. Well, I was confused by it because there was this woman, but she was really a man, and so we're we're asking a lot of again of certain audiences. By, by doing that. You know um, what, though? You're asking no more than the audience that you would ask to see Miss Saigon, to see Les Mis. You just need to pay attention. It's the same clientele that would go see Les Mis, would go see Miss Saigon. I personally was super confused by the end of Miss Saigon and then saw it again and went, oh, great. The second you don't pay attention, you lose the whole story. And there are moments where there are certain people playing parts that you're like, I don't know why, but it, okay. And you just have to let that 
bias of what you feel like people should be. Again, putting a label on things, and that was a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, putting a label on what you feel like people should be, or what you think it should sound like, or feel like, or whatever rhythm you have in your head of what a female sounds like or a male sounds like, yeah. playing whatever part. Just listen. There's it. it you can be black, like, white, straight. It, it absolutely game. works. Either yeah. Way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I also think the video and the, the projections really aid a lot oh, yeah, to it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, and, and again, I, I certainly agree with that. So I, I changed it or, or um, uh, I'll say that. I, I changed it um, more or less um, for those reasons, to, to make it a little bit clearer, right? Um, don't get me wrong. I still have um, some... Um, race and gender changing happening within the mm-hmm. within the, the setup in, of the, inside storytelling inside right, the play, right? Right, ex- exactly. So I still have um, I still have some of that happening, but I needed to clarify um, uh, <coughs> some of those roles. But but also, we're in a different place than we were uh, when we did this at Playmakers, yeah. and even when we did it at CFRT, absolutely. Um, and and I felt that uh, I needed to make white people white people and black people black people um, because I didn't want to let anybody off the hook. Uh-huh. You know, we are at... I'm going to make you repeat that because I need to hear that again. Go ahead. But I just, I, I couldn't let anybody off the hook. And what the... Specifically, the playmaker's version of this does is it gave people the opportunity to say, "Oh, that's not me," um, um, uh, or "or oh, it's it's two black guys playing the racist in this um, right, right. in that in that um, ha, Charlotte ha, scene." Right, right, right. Ha ha! Okay, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. and which is which was fine again, exactly like you say in a university setting. In a, it, it's fine in a university, university setting. setting when Obama was president. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But now, now I, I no, you it's know, those, it's those two white guys. Who it, are, exactly. Who are, we, uh, we, we, we're, we're not going to pull back words from that. And who are, no who are having the, yeah. No, it's it's tough. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely interesting. I get to play for the show, and it's so interesting to see the audience watch the show. Because um, you know, you just get to a point in the show where you don't really have to read the music, and you just watch the audience sink into the show in whatever way they sink into the show. And I've noticed that people are uncomfortable. And some of their uncomfortability shines in a very weird way that we were talking about it after a show one day that we had an audience member. The use of the N-word happens a lot in the show. And the first time it was used, one of the audience members just could not stop laughing. We were like, really? Really? But then we thought about, so then we got to, spoiler alert, got to act two with um, Meredith's scene uh, Brown Bessie. Oh, right. And uh, watch that person just change instantly. So it was one of those moments of like, how, what, how are you? So, so interesting. So I want to share something about that scene. So there's a scene in the play where, and this is a gender switching scene. Right. Um, but there's a scene where a young African American man uh, who historically was not a freedom rider, so did not have the same protections. Right. And ends up getting beaten brutally. Um, by a, with a large leather lip, whip 
and and the, and the scene is 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 abstracted in terms of the violence of it, right? We're, we're right. not trying to pretend like it's actually happening. Yeah, it's it's both beautifully done, but also done in a way that is fully invested in the emotional ride of that. And um, and this is something that you don't get as an audience member. This is something where so Wallace, my wife, is in the show, and and hearing her perspective on certain things is really interesting. You know, you don't you you know I'm watching as an audience member what you, the director, are kind of f- uh, focusing me on. So um, so Wallace and I had a conversation about this scene, and it was around like it's. It's terrible for me in a place where we're actually podcasting to bring up a review in any kind of way, but I'm going to bring it up here. <laughs> so, um, so a review from a major paper uh, complained that the show was too light; <sighs> it had too much humor in it. Right? I have, I have, I have uh, something so, to say. About so, this. so while this is this this is the perspective really? I get from Wallace. Oh, yeah, I guess I didn't see that one. So, um, and and I think that I think you do a great job in the show of of documenting why that happens right mm-hmm. you know you ask why we sing because you have to right? right but so um wallace said about that particular comment yeah that's a that's a a, a point of view from a comfortable white guy and and yes. what she shared was that kiki uh Jikitrius mm-hmm. in the show who's the youngest I think she's the youngest cast member in the show. Aside from Reed. Reed. Aside from Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, who's one of the freedom riders. Mm-hmm. Right. Reed's not on stage during that beating. And what Wallace shared to me is that from her perspective, Jakitrius, during that scene, many nights, is just weeping. Just weeping. Mm-hmm. This isn't an actor, like, I'm making a choice mm-hmm. to manufacture tears. Because, no, this is, this is the person dealing with what is... A very difficult scene of racial violence in the play. That's hard for this actor. And um, if you're going to go there, I mean, I was at uh, I was at a talk and I was talking about the show, and somebody said, "Look, so I want you to take this seriously. I've got some pretty serious PTSD around racial violence. I don't know if I can see this play. Can we talk about that?" So if you're if you're the comfortable white guy and like that scene kind of rolls off your back. Then you can say, well, the whole thing should be this kind of serious, you know, and 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 complain about the humor, complain about the music, complain about how joyous the play gets at times, right. because you can't stay there. Right, right. Uh, uh. I, I don't understand. Not every show um, stays there. I mean, even the Diary of Anne Frank doesn't stay there. There's well, humor the thing, in that. Is it, There's is humor. I think, and the thing that I think Mike understands is that that one of the things that's different about play than a book is you can't put it down, right? You're all in a room right. together for two-plus hours, and if it gets too dark and too heavy for too long, you're going to lose people because mm-hmm. they can't right. stay because there. Because they can't stay there. Right. And that's always been from, the, from day one putting pen to paper. Mm-hmm. Also, knowing, even though this play is written for everyone, but knowing black audiences, you know... Um, the person who wrote that review, you're absolutely right. That's from a comfortable, white perspective, probably even liberal, but one of those individuals that, that is obsessed with trauma on the black body, right? 
there are folks out there that are that will call themselves progressive, but for some reason are obsessed with seeing trauma on the black body. We have not only seen trauma on the black body enough, we have felt it all of our lives. We're born knowing trauma on the black body. Black folks, if they came to this play and all it was was trauma on the black body, they would stop coming. Oh. Word would get out and they would say, or they would say, I can't, mm, I can't, I can't walk. They wouldn't come in back into the second act? Right, right. This is the kind of show that black audience, specifically black audience of a certain age, it does just enough. It does just enough to, to trigger those memories, but also to make them proud of where we've, of where we've come, mm-hmm. not to make them uncomfortable in their seats about, being, about sitting around with white people seeing trauma on, inflicted on, on the black body. You know, there's a, there's a line in the play that's around the Jim's work beating mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where um, uh, one of the actresses talks about um, people holding up children uh, it couldn't be more than two or three to claw at the eyes right and um, at one of those panels uh, Ed Ladd uh, talked about and this is something that happened you know in like 61, this is a long time ago, he was 13 at a sit-in, and he got choked up and could barely talk about um, sitting at a counter and having a man come up with a boy who was probably three and say, this is an N-word, spit on them, this is what we do to these people. Like, this is, like, his experience with that. And and it's that trauma is right on the surface that happened how many years ago? Wow. Wow. I mean, this is, you're right. I mean, right. This is, the play does He doesn't that. need to see that. No, no. He lived it. Right. Yep. Right? And it's just like even a person my age doesn't necessarily need to see it because my grandparents lived it. Right. I've seen it my entire life. I've read about it my entire life. I know it. It goes far enough to. And a couple weeks ago, here. You got pulled over going through a toll. Right, going right, through a, a toll. Cop, like, I, reaching for her gun. Telling me that I had too much attitude simply because I was questioning her motives for pulling me over. But, again, that's not enough for some people. We have had some incredible people in the audience from governors to mayors to, to affluent people in the community, and I think one of... My personal favorites was having Heather Heyer's mom here. Oh, boy. Um, it was very... Une- I had no idea she was coming, so it was very unexpected. And then listening to her speak after um, after the show was really, really, really moving. Um, if you could have an audience of invited guests, of political figures, Hollywood figures, who would you want in your audience to see this pro- to see this product? Political figures, I'd, I'd most definitely want... Um, uh, a John Lewis, a Hillary Clinton, a Bernie Sanders, a um, uh, um, a Cory Booker, um, um, tell the United States Senate, the United States Congress, um, maybe even the president, maybe not. Uh, but uh, look, I think that I mean I do think that that people in power who would be open to it, mm-hmm. right? I mean I, I don't necessarily need. 
somebody who's going to come in and then like make a political stunt out of standing up and walking out or yeah, whatever, absolutely right? I mean, not. Um, but uh, but I think that this is I mean it, this is an important story for I mean yeah you want John Lewis to come see it um, yeah. yeah you want Hillary Clinton to come see it I, would, I was told, I was told in in Minneapolis the district attorney brought came and saw it and then brought the uh, the the prosecuting team. Um, that was prosecuting the officer that eventually was found not guilty um, on the Philando Castile case. Really? Yes. That's you know you. That's who you want. To that's come who see. you want to come see. Oh, yeah. You know the city council, the whole city council here, who in the coming years is going to be wrestling with Confederate monument issue. Like we'd like them to come see the show. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and 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 come and engage in the conversation. Yeah. No, it's it's and so I think the thing that Mike has done really well is that it is um, the play is structured in such a way that there are there are sort of points of entry for a lot of different points of view. Mm-hmm. It, I don't feel like it's it doesn't feel like I'm being preached to, um, at least not in a because I do I do describe this play when I'm out in the community as uh, it's like a good day at church. Right, you yeah. you, 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 it's, yeah. it's challenging. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it can it can be difficult, but you can walk out feeling uh, inspired and, and engaged. I, I, yeah, I think a good preacher tells his congregation what they need to hear in a way that they want to hear it. Right. So it's the good preaching, not the preaching to the converted mm-hmm. kind yeah. of like this is how you should think. It's the good preacher of let's think about this let's yeah. this is something you should think about mm-hmm. rather than this is how you should think yeah I completely agree so because we have a two show day today I have one final question for both of you what's next where are we going what are we doing brother <laughs> you know Mike and I you know so we worked on this show now twice uh, we did uh, downrange voices from the home front mm-hmm. which was a very exciting project uh, in Fayetteville around army spouses and dealing with how being an army spouse has changed after 9-11. Um, I'm excited. Like, so talk just a little bit about your project coming up at Playmakers. So currently I'm working on a piece for uh, Playmakers called Leaving Eden. And um, the title comes from a song um, by the woman who is actually the, um, the musical um, director, composer for the piece, Leaving Eden, um, which was actually made popular by the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Mm-hmm. And um, the play itself is about a fictional small town in North Carolina wrestling with its immigrant population. Um, that is, its Latino population is wrestling with um, with how the community can continue to be a community while attempting to pass laws that in essence, banish these uh, these Latinos mm-hmm. who actually are bringing in quite a bit of money. Um, but I wouldn't be Mike Wiley if it didn't actually have a historical slant to it. Mm-hmm. So the play takes place in two time periods, um, 2016 before the election and, um, and 1943 uh, when uh, the town was predominantly... African-American and the whites back 
I'm Teddy Holmes. Uh-huh. I am originally from Calvary, Georgia. I have been a resident of Virginia Beach. It happened all over. And I played just simply rise up. And now, what has your experience been like in the black populations? It has been uh, take their houses, uh, take their farms. Uh, very sobering. And this town in North it's Carolina is that town that's sort of covering up that history. Uh, yeah. Do you have a website? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wileyproductions.com. And what's that VSC website? VAStage.org. Guys, go visit. Go figure out where these productions are happening. Um, if you are able to catch a production of Parchment or you are able to catch a production of the new production of, tell me one more time, of Leaving Eden. Leaving Eden at Playmakers, please go do that. You don't want to miss it. It's a fantastic, fantastic show, Parchment Hour. And um, it's been a pleasure what? to be a part of it. Um, and we will see it off Broadway at some I'll point. I'll give you the energy to do give the show. We'll get there. Thanks, guys. Live this journey it. tonight. It's a responsibility as a storyteller to. Um, to to communicate truth, you know, some people come for an entertaining experience, but I'm telling something that's from the point of telling something that's very real, and that was very real for these people every single day. Mm-hmm. The early civil rights leaders, the reality every single day, and that gives me the energy. You know, no matter how tired I am, I know they had to get up day in, day out, and they just did not stop. So the least I could do is, you know, contribute my time and energy to this. I'm going to unexpectedly bring the other three humans in this room into this conversation. <laughs> so, hi friends. I know, you're you're sicky sick. That's why I'm all the way over here. So, tell me about everybody's experience on Parchment and what the show has meant or what you've learned or how difficult or not difficult it was to bring the story to life. And tell me, yeah, go ahead. Tell me who you are and who you play and all that good stuff. Where are you from? Hello, my name is Isaiah Roper. <laughs> I am from Red Springs, North Carolina. Um, and I played the role of Hank Thomas. Uh, this show was special to me because I never really learned about the Freedom Riders in high school. Um, and what I did learn, it was like touch and go. So to actually be a part of the show and like learn what happened in more depth was like wow you know and um even though in the show we didn't go far in depth into like every topic it was still worthwhile like just knowing you know because in high school I didn't know and I wouldn't have known had I not did this show or even like read the script but so yeah that's my answer. How about you two? Uh, what was it like to be a part of Parchment Hour? First of all, tell me who you are and who you play. Um, my name is Jonathan Cooper. Um, I play Freddie Leonard. Uh, this was very different for me, um, mainly because I really didn't know who these people were. And being able to being able to play these characters and finding out who they really are and what they really did was was very special because they don't get some type of the recognition that they that they uh, that they deserve. Uh, they don't see 
how much effort they really put into this to have everybody have to have everybody to have the equal rights. So uh, it was very different, very different for me. But it was a good difference, not a bad difference. And you also share the stage with your professor. What's that like? Uh, kind of weird because <laughs> you never. You'll never believe that you'll be on stage with your professor and your college experience. So, kind of being up there with him and not being able for him to give you notes mm-hmm. is kind of different. Because you're so used to receiving notes from him or telling for him to giving you direction, and he doesn't do that at all. So, it was very, very weird to. And you get to see him. Get notes, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear you. We don't ever do that or get the chance to see that, so that was pretty cool too. And how about you, my friend? Um, hi, what's up, salutations? My name is um, Jeremy Morris. I play John Lewis. Um, I came into this experience first and foremost knowing a, um, a decent amount uh, about the Freedom Riders, and um, of course, I had experience with the show as well. Um, I, I've done the show in North Carolina um, as a touring piece uh, for schools. So um, I, I've been a student of history, about of American history, and specifically um, as it pertains to peoples of the African diaspora um, for a very, very long time. So this is kind of just like a continuation of the work that I've pretty much dedicated my life to. It's a very important thing to do um, to really be able to um, bring context to what's going on in the world today. As a matter of fact, I think the last time I had done this tour, it was literally a few months, uh, a few months right into the um, the case about Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman coming into national prominence. I was just finishing uh, one of the, the first tw- time I did the tour um, when that started breaking into the news, I believe. And so for people nowadays who rail against, and actually it's interesting because the talk back that we had a couple days ago, Tom mentions that he's gotten angry feedback from certain people who have come to see this play because it mentions the Black Lives Matter movement as in context for what's going on in the world today and why it's connected, why it's connected to the, the struggle for um, equality in this country. And it's just poetic, you know, it's almost poetic to have that people who patronized this show, who came to see something that they might not have known a whole lot about in history concerning the civil rights movement. And this is the great celebrated civil rights movement now. Everybody loves, oh, we love Dr. King. Oh, we love, you know, uh, James Farmer. Oh, we love John Lewis. Oh, these people were such trailblazers. They were so brave. They were so courageous. And these days, they look at the very same struggle. It's the name has just changed. Mm-hmm. We were talking about police brutality back then. We were talking about inequality back then. We were protesting back then. And so they remember the civil rights movement so fondly because, you know, there there there's something that you you can remove yourself from it. Mm-hmm. These days, once they realize, no, it's now. No, it's happening right now, mm-hmm. right? They have the same sentiment for about the freedom riders as those people, you know, they they might not be the kinds of people that'll go and start bashing people in the head. And right. things like that, but at the same time, they recoil, they 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 back out of it, mm-hmm. and so bringing people into the context of what is going on today and really uh, putting it in their face and in their hearts that it's something that 
you know, they not only need to uh, recognize right. is important, but they need to recognize that it's coming from the exact same place and that their reaction is something that is par for the course okay. of the narrative of this country that has taught them that there are certain things that just ought not be messed with. Absolutely. So then, for all of you in this room, what do you feel like should be next for how this story grows legs and continues and goes on? What's next? I personally feel like um, it's, it's an interesting thing to be able to say it, but um, what really um, is next for this play is what's next for this country. Back when we did the tour version of it, it, it culminated in um, Barack Obama's inauguration, which was still like, I mean, at the forefront of this country's imagination, being like, how could this have ever happened? Like, and you know, it, it's it's the two questions of, oh my God, it's finally here, right? And you know, just how, why did it take so long for it to get here? And then, of course, the other question that most Black folks have in the back of their minds is, uh, how long is this brother gonna last? Mm-hmm. Because we know what they do with with the, you know, the people who have the position with us, the, the people who um, they consider our leaders, though they don't, you know, they don't consider themselves needing of any leaders. They always look at us and say, oh, they need leadership, okay. right? But even still, we have always had remarkable people among us, the same as anybody else. But when that happens, and especially when it upsets the natural order of things, that's when you start looking, oh my God, how long is this guy going to last, right? Everybody mm-hmm. had that question in their minds. So we, we were able to culminate the ending of the play and say, you know, had our minds stayed on freedom, and this is what it brought. This, right. this, this black man is now in office, in the highest office of the land, right? So the very next step is what we have now. The very next step is the president of the United States now who is literally attempting to regress this country. And there's literally another movement for civil rights for people of color. And not even just them, for for um, for gay people. Uh, women are now coming into a, uh, hopefully coming into a, a, a solidarity across the board because, you know, the feminist movement and everything like that has mostly never, con- never considered or included black women, but they seem to be trying to get on that same page now about gender equality and things like that, you know, equal pay and all that. So Absolutely. it's like this, the tide is turning in this country once again. Mm-hmm. And from that from that great cresting wave, we're going to have to decide in the aftermath what kind of Americans we're going to be again. And I think that's what the, whatever the, the future is of that in this country is the future of this show. There it is. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Good. So who do you play in the show? So, can you tell our lovely listeners a little bit about what your character, who your character is? My character is, well, on the surface, he's the head prison guard at Parchman Prison, at Parchman Penitentiary. Uh, On a deeper level, he is a conglomeration of all of what what was the worst about white people then and what is the worst about white people now. Because as Jeremy was saying, it's still today that, that we, we are seeing the resurgence of these feelings. No, not the resurgence of the feelings. The reemergence of the feelings, because they've always been there. They're just being given a platform again. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully the 
character is to the people who are willing to see it a mirror of of today's society uh, and, and what we're what we're seeing and what we hope at least those of us in this cast and hopefully more what we hope to uh, to to cut out of mm -hmm. society to excise to you know if we wake up to it a little bit if we see that that's who we are maybe maybe one or two people in the run of the show have been able to minutes, see everybody 15 minutes maybe one or two people in the run of the show have been able to see themselves or someone they know in Tyson mm -hmm. and been able to say okay I need to make that change, or I can help make that change. All right, my friends, you just got a 15-minute call, which means we have a show we're closing today. Do you, hi, how are you? Are you awake? So tell our lovely listeners something about Parchment, who you play, and what it's like to be a part of a show like this. He's standing up, everybody. This means he's going to preach. It's going to happen right now. <laughs> My name is Christopher Lindsay, and I play the uh, younger, militant um, version of Stokely Carmichael. Um, he's really a Stokely who's still discovering his identity and who he is and who he wants to be. Uh, the best part about being in this play, to me... Um, is the fact that we we I don't know we we get to deal with the problems of today by talking about stories from the past. Oh. Uh, it's so funny how history just repeats itself over and over and over again. And maybe right. it's, it's, it's for a reason um, that that we don't know about. Uh, but the best part about being in it is that, you know, the audience walks away with many different interpretations, but one interpretation is always the same, is that, you know, there needs to, there need, a change needs to come, and when it comes, it needs to be definite. Mm -hmm. Not just some progress, but a complete change. As uh, my friend John Lewis said the other day, progress is not change. Change is change. Yes, he did. So I'm going to put two of you on the spot because the show is so heavy, but there's a couple of parts in the show that are incredibly hilarious. And the audience seems to like them and always talk about them. And it's the bantering back and forth between uh, Freddie and Stoke. And so... I'm going to have you do one of those sections for me. I don't care which one. You can pick a section. Hey, Freddie. Yes, dude. Your mama's so ugly. No, your mama's so old, she walked into an antique store. <laughs> and they kept her. That's <laughs> 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 his line. Hey, Stoke. Yeah, Freddie. 
Your mama's so ugly, people break in the house and close the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> you got two more, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Your mama's so ugly, even the tide won't take her out. They stoop. Yeah, Freddy. Your mama's so fat, we took a picture of her last Christmas, and it's still developing. Have a good show, everybody, and happy closing. (laughs) Thank you. So, I'm going to start with you over here, my friend. Who are you? What do you do? (laughs) My name's Anthony Stockard, and I'm in the show as Pee Wee and Martin Luther King. That voice, everybody. (laughs) What has it been like to be in the show for you? Pretty interesting. Um, uh, challenging in many ways um, in terms of uh, finding uh, my actual uh, time to be in the room, first of all. <laughs> and um, I'm definitely singing in a range that I've never sung before in public. And you do it very well. Well, thank you. You're welcome. But I have many heart attacks every time <laughs> I walk out to <laughs> sing the song. <laughs> Which is, which is why this tea is right here. I hear you. Yes. Are there any like trucks or vans or anything going back to campus today after the show? I have no idea. You would need to talk to uh, Carolyn, the production manager, to ask her about that. They're, they're returning our revolutions and our microphones back to campus, but I don't know if that's today or tomorrow. Okay, I was wondering because I was wondering um, if there was any way I could get the uh, that was still the be Carolyn. Over here. Yeah, I got you. But that would definitely Carolyn. Be yeah. Okie dokie. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Yep. He's our drummer. He's lazy. Um, what's it like being in a show with your students? This is probably my fifth show with students. Okay. Um, I've done... Uh, is, is this the first? No, it's not the first musical. Um, I've done... We did The Tempest, and I did that with students. I've done Christmas Carol two years in a row with students. Um, we did The Wiz, which was with students. Um, I Sing the Rising Sea was with ODU students, not my students. Okay. Um, and then, um, yeah, but it's pretty cool. It's fun to be out there with them. And, um, and like I said, with this particular challenge of, uh, the vocal range, it's also very, uh, in- intimidating to be out there because some of these little kids can go. <laughs> <laughs> Can't they though? Can't they? Um, you also, when not on Virginia Stage Company stage are running a full department at Norfolk State University. I am. I'm the head of theater at Norfolk State University. And um, we are, we had a show that opened two days before this show opened. And we've been in rehearsals for a week now for our next production. Woo-hoo. And we start Christmas Carol on Tuesday. And you've been here. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah. And you, Christmas came early at Norfolk State because something very cool just happened. Yes, we opened up a brand new facility. Um, it came with a brand new proscenium theater, a brand new studio theater, a brand new amphitheater, uh, all state-of-the-art technology. And um, we are elated to have that um, on campus now. It is beautiful. I got to tour it the other day. Yeah, I'm sure we'll is. talk to you soon because there's another production that we get to work together on. Some well, actually, two. 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 Yes. Oh my god! I can't even keep them all straight. I'll Maybe. be back. Don't you worry. <laughs> well, hello there, friends. What's up, bro? How are you? I'm just dandy. Who are you? What do you do? What happens in the show for you? Uh, my name is Daniel Hines. Mm-hmm. I play Elwood and Stephen Green. Elwoods. Elwood. Oh, Elwood. Elwoods. I'm sorry. Legally blonde. Same, same basic thing. <laughs> Except in this case, you know. Instead of Harvard, you're going to Mississippi. Instead of Harvard, okay. going to Mississippi. Yeah, this yeah. is very offensive. I'm going to stop this line of questioning right now. <laughs> um, what's it been like to be in the show for you? 
Uh, it's been awesome. It's been really awesome. Um, it's been a, an excellent learning experience. Um, learning about, you know, the kind of details about some of these parts of the civil rights movement that I knew something about, mm-hmm. now I know lots more about. Um, one of the coolest things has been the, uh, the panels and talkbacks after the shows where we have had actual freedom riders and part of the Norfolk 17, the first group of people who uh, integrated the schools in the area. They were here? They were here. I did not know that. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Where was I? Was that like our first panel? Uh... I think that the Norfolk 17 was the second panel. Wow, I can't believe I missed that. Hi, friend. You just joined. How are you? Who are you? Grand, I'm Benjamin Kearns. Who do you play in the show? I play Forsyth and Svano, Bill Svano, and Albert Gordon, and Simeon Booker, and some so you have like one role, really. <laughs> um, you've been in this production a couple times. Nope. No, this is Not your first true. time. My first time. Oh wow! What you, so tell me what you feel about the production, having been in it the first time with others who have been in it for multiple times. Um. Well, I'm happy to be in it this time because I think. I think well, with the exception of the Guthrie, because it's the best time. It is the best time. But the. I, th- I think the, the Guthrie production was in the last year. Uh-huh. But the other productions were during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So I feel like... Well, Guthrie uh, was too. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was before. It was the end of... Towards the end of it, right? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this is the first Trump era freshman hour. Correct. Then I'm very happy to be in this one. Um, not to say that it wasn't needed in the previous ones, but I feel like the need for it has increased exponentially. The need in what way? Um, it, the I think uh, just trying to approach the subject matter, just the, you know, this uh, trying to approach the subject matter in a way that um, I think is empowering and makes people feel good. It makes people feel like coming together instead of addressing the problem in ways that make people feel guilt and shame and more divisive after the discussion has been had. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, not just, you know, like obviously the conversation is important to be had. Five minutes, everybody. But I feel like the show Five for us. Five minutes. Uh, for as much as it tackles, I think it, it ends with a. A sense of hope, which um, so in, so in that sense, I think it speaks to the last ten months in a big way because I feel like that is a sense that God, it's only been ten months. Do you did any of your and this is for both of you? Did any of your opinions change on society today after doing this show? I wouldn't say for me. Uh, I wouldn't say that, like, there was something specifically revelatory in the text of the show that has made me look at society differently. Um, however, I think the discussions we've been able to have with community members, and specifically with community members who have lived through the past few generations, mm-hmm. um, it is that has been something that has been very informative of where our society is historically beyond the realm of what I've been alive for. Um, and hearing first-hand accounts as opposed to just a history book or, a, or, or you know, that kind of generational hand down to, to hear people 
who were there having this discussion. It's different. Um, opinions about society at large, I don't know, but what I think is interesting about the show is that for as big as the movement is that the show is attempting to inform and entertain people with, the moments in the show that I love, as I was just telling Daniel this backstage, is like the conversation between Lucretia and the cop on the bus is, um, to me, like, that's a moment in the show that I think is easy to forget, and it, and it shouldn't be, because mm-hmm. what she does is she's like, let's have a sandwich and have a conversation, because I feel like, I don't know, I love that moment, because she's like, it's, it can start that small. Right. It's literally how small it can start. Like, if, if we meet and learn something about each other, then this, this system of keeping us apart will be harder to do. Right. Um, but it starts at something that's small. And, and, and to me, the, the part I really love is when um, when Stokely and John Lewis argue about uh, the the ownership of, of Christianity. Yeah. Because both sides claim it as uh, their inspiration. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, I think it's interesting that like if you feel like you're on the side of good, you should examine the apparatus with which you're operating, right? And make sure that that is part, like that you want to be part of that apparatus, or like what you know, what are all the trappings that go along with that? Um, I think that's the most challenging part of the show for an audience. Gosh, you just mic drop that. Thank you. Have a fantastic act too, guys. Thanks so much. I'm sitting in the hair chair, I guess we can call it this, with the baby of our family. Tell us who you are and who you play in the show. Um, my name is Reed Miller, and I play Janie Forsyth. And can you tell me a little bit about who that is? She is a 12-year-old girl in the 60s, and her um, at the beginning it just shows a little bit of her family, and then there's the bus explosion with the Freedom Riders, and she sees them and doesn't really know what to do. And as the show progresses, she gets like closer and starts helping them more. I heard you did extensive research for this part. I did do some research. What did you do, and how did you find it? Well, I just I googled Janie Forsyth, and I saw some videos with her talking, and then some articles about her and stuff. And it just talked about her mindset during the bus explosion and you know, everything that she was thinking about. Like, should I help them, or... Is she still alive? I don't even know. I'm pretty sure she's still alive. What has it been like for you to do this show? There's a lot of scenes in the show that you aren't on stage for, but I, because of where I'm positioned, I get to watch you watch the show, and it's actually really cool to see. What, um... What do you feel like this show is about? Well, I mean, it's obviously a really important message because even though it takes place during the 60s, a lot of this is still present now and a lot of people just need to hear this and see how unjust it is. Is it something that in our area we see some of? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's more present with, like, shootings and stuff, but it's everywhere. It's here, too. Now, have you gotten feedback from people that have come to see the show? Yeah, I've gotten some comments from strangers saying that I did a good job, okay. so that was nice. Would you do this part again? I would. What's your favorite part about the whole show? Um, that's really difficult. I know, right? I like to ask difficult questions. Um, it's obviously really fun being on stage, mm-hmm. especially with this part, because I get to like run around with the um, toy horse, and mm-hmm. then I get to jump rope, and 
that's really fun. But it's also cool watching and listening to the songs because everyone's just such a good singer and they're just so talented. Now, I put you on the spot. Well, I was told to put you on the spot at some point during the show. And I got you to sing. (laughs) That was rough. (laughs) So you're really excited about singing and you're going to sing all the time now. Sure. So negative. I also hear that you're in a show coming up after this show. Yes, that's just a school play. What's play? Tell me everything. It's musical, and I'm just a background role because I don't sing. So. <laughs> because I don't sing. I love it. Reed, you have a show in like ten minutes. Nine minutes. That was Alicia. She's wonderful. Um, so go get ready for your show. I'm going to go pop into some of the girls and see if I can bother them for a little bit. But thanks for answering some questions. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good show. Thanks. Hi, friends. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm just Dandy. We're closing the parchment hour today. And so, oh, sad. What is this show meant to you guys or for you guys? Or what have you felt about this show through the process? Some of you have been with it longer than others. Oh, and tell me who you are and who you play in the show. I think the show is just, um, I think it's just very inspirational, especially because it ties into the modern day, especially now with Trump as president. Can you say that? I mean, I pay for this myself, so you can't cancel oh, me. Oh, sure. So okay. Well, we'll like, yeah. I just feel like it, like, people who are, like, culturally ignorant to the struggles of African-American people, I think the show, like, because it shows the correlations, I think it opens their eyes a lot and allows them to see, like, oh, that makes sense. We're still going through that right now instead of being like, oh, that's so long ago. This is a history play. Like, no, like, this is still happening. Like, wake up. You have to piggyback uh, uh, Samantha Fabiani, J.T. Mulholland. Um... (laughs) And local thug. <laughs> and Bulconner. Um, more importantly, local thug. Um, yeah, to piggyback off it, like when we did it in 2013, it very much was, you know, it felt like a history show. Like it was just a play. And it was a cool meeting, but it was just like, oh, that's fun. But now it's, um, and to steal what Tom Quintus has said, to steal what Tom says, it feels much more like a call to action, like we're trying to to send a message in hopes that someone hears it. But it's, it's very, it's a different experience this time around than it was the first time around. The end. I have the same one. I'm just waiting for your answer. (laughs) (laughs) What has been uh, a challenge in mounting the show? Mm. I think for me personally, oh, my name is Meredith Noel. I play Mimi Real. I do a very poor impersonation of Robert N. You don't. Dee Dee does. I play Jesse Harris. (laughs) And... A deacon. I'm gonna call him a deacon because that that's what I feel like yet when he's preaching. But I'm dancing. I'm not a dancer. The choreography was my biggest challenge. <laughs> in the end, I blended in, and I did not stand out like a sore thumb. So I, I call that a W. That's a win. <laughs> You're out of control. 
Um, I was like, I talked about this. Oh, I'm Dee Dee Batiste. <laughs> no, I play Krisha Collins, <laughs> or sometimes Meredith, depending on reviews. Thank you. Um, no, no, I said this the other day. Um, uh, this show is particularly hard because a lot of it is generated internally out because like we don't get to talk to each other even though it's an ensemble piece I think I maybe have one scene where I talk to Daniel like really talk but for the most part you send you shoot out a lot of energy into the void and unless the audience gives it back you don't get anything back so yeah, yeah. so yeah it's it, that's been difficult as mm -hmm. an actress to like I love to play with other actors and like oh that scene was great today and oh I felt this energy but it's different. Play. It's not good or bad. It's like, it's just a different, um, you're playing, yeah, you're, it's almost like 13 one-person shows because they're testimonies from these mm -hmm. people. So, um, I get a little scene at the top as well, but nobody talks back to Pearl. She just screams at people and then people scream at her. Thanks, domestics. <laughs> Hashtag domestics. Hashtag domestics. That's it. No, that's, so that's different. All right. I'm going to go put on a costume, and we're going to start the last show, and I'm going to come back at intermission, and I'm going to ask you more questions. Yes. And I'm going to ask Kiki about You're all the pictures of herself on her laptop. There. She loves a good selfie. I do. I like a good selfie. Eyeball raised, cheekbone to the light. I do one or two, you know... Every three to four months, you cycle one day. You don't want to get too much. I'm with you. I agree. 